Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Picture the Scene Podcast. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. We bring you a new episode on a weekly basis, mainly focusing on lesser known crimes from the UK and Ireland. However, at times we expand into cases from anywhere in the world and all ones that are well known. As we are a true crime podcast, listener caution is always advised. And today there is no exception, so please be aware. If you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice. And if you have the capability, give us a rating and review as well. It does mean a world to us, doesn't it, Rach? Absolutely. We love our subscribers. We love our reviews. We love hearing uh, from our wonderful listeners. We love it. Thank you so much. Grateful for every single one of you. And if you like us that much that you want to support us, you can do so for less than the price of a cup of tea or coffee on Patreon with our lowest tier starting at £1 per month. We release bonus content every month. The links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or visit patreon.com for slash scenepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com for slash s-c-e-n-e-p-o-d. And with that in mind, I want to say hello, welcome to the family, to our latest Patreon subscriber. We have... Bethan Truman uh, subscribed to us, Rachel. So welcome, Bethan. We Bethan is a friend of the pod anyway, so it's awesome that she wants to support us, isn't it, Rachel? Uh, absolutely. It's like podcast royalty, that, Bethan. Thank you very much. Very honoured to have you along with our other Patreon subscribers. So thank you. Welcome to the yeah. club. Our family's getting bigger. We might have to move to a minivan or something soon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we also um, hope you enjoy uh, our back catalogue um, of uh, Patreon episodes too, Bethan. Yes, indeed. And we do, where possible, now release our episodes a week early for our Patreon supporters. So if you want to hear us in advance, you don't need to wait a week. All you have to do is support us on Patreon. Funny you should mention for the price of a cup of tea, Andrew. I didn't think I'd find someone who loves tea as much as you, but Mike from Murder Mile obviously does. Do you listen to the extra bit at the end of his episodes? Yeah, of course. It's so funny. Plus, you know, he loves cake too. Who doesn't love cake? And it's unscripted as well. It is, but it's just another reason to go and listen to Mike from Murder Mile. Definitely. I've subscribed now. So, how have you been since we last spoke, Rachel? Yeah, all good. Thank you. Uh, can't believe we're already on uh, season three, episode three. Uh, feels like uh, we never had that break. Distant memory now, isn't it? It is a distant memory, yeah. Feels like such a long time ago. Aye. But we're getting lots of lovely comments on our episodes and I feel like the show's really evolving. I feel like we're evolving as we're writing our scripts and, you know, uh, obviously our season three opener was a co-hosted episode which people seem to enjoy and uh and yeah so all good how about you how are you i am sparkling thank you very much i love it you're always so concise and always so sparkling yes indeed well evolving or mutating rachel one of the two the question i have to ask you though is are you ready for some true crime andrew do you really need to ask me this? I'm always ready for true crime. And i tell you who else is ready for some true crime, Rachel. Go on. 
And that's Charlene Chapman. If you remember, she became a member of our patron family back in episode one, season three. And I do she, remember. And she requested this case. And it's one I actually knew and I liked. And I hadn't thought about for a while. So I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. So thank you, Charlene. <laughs> and hopefully we do it justice. Yeah, love how you've just joined the family and you're already uh, making waves with uh, episode recommendations. Thank you, Charlene. So, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you to relax, close your eyes and picture the scene. Today, I'd like to take us back to 4.30pm, September the 5th, 2004, and we're going to the affluent, quiet village of Melling, which is in the Brewer of Sefton in Merseyside. It's a small village with a population of around 4,000 people, and it's a short half an hour drive, almost nine miles to Liverpool. It was a dry day. With not much wind that day, except just before 4.30, our time in question that we're going to, a strongish 10 mile an hour northerly wind picks up around the same time, making the 75 degree Fahrenheit or 24 degree Celsius weather seem a little bit chillier than it had at any other point in the day. Now it's a quiet location, Rachel, mainly middle to upper class families and a lot of people later on in their years. So it skews the average age of a location towards the higher end. And it's the sort of place that people look out for each other and their neighbours would know what each other neighbour was doing, even if you liked it or not. Oh dear, one of those villages. Possibly. And it's because of this community spirit, or noise, nosiness, depends which way you look at it, that led a couple to inquire about two of their neighbours. Sydney and Jacqueline Blackwell. Now, Sydney was 72 and Jacqueline, his wife, was 60 years old. Both were retired, with Sydney being a retired accountant and Jacqueline was a retired antique shop worker. The pair met when they were teenagers, but they didn't get divorced properly until some 20 years later, getting together after both had married and divorced already. Sydney had two children from his previous marriage, and Jacqueline had none. And friends would report that children were not really at the top of their wish list. But you know, Rachel, sometimes you can't plan what will happen in life. So when Jacqueline was 40 and Sydney was 52, she fell pregnant. They gave birth to a boy and named him Brian. And they lived quite a privileged life, doting on their only son that they had together. So this community spirit rage, what I mentioned a moment or two ago, well, the Blackwells had lived in that house all of Brian's life. So they were well known in the area. So when neighbours hadn't seen them in a while, they became concerned or curious. I'm not sure which, but spotting they had packages on their doorstep, a neighbour went over to the Blackwells' house to collect the packages and see if they could see anything because they hadn't been seen in weeks. Yeah, what would you do in that situation, Andrew? Would you be calling the um, local authorities and asking for a welfare check, or would you go in and scope through a couple of the windows and see what the crack was? Depending on the situation, I'd probably go over, get the package so it didn't get wet or anything, and I'd maybe have a little look in, but it depends what other information I knew. And, and these neighbours did know some more information. I think I'd be too scared to look through windows. Like, I don't think I'd cope. I think we've we've spoken about it before, haven't we, when uh, these search parties go out on the hunt for missing people. Um, 
what would be going through my mind is what am I going to find? Oh my goodness. I, I'm not ready for this. Do you know? So uh, yeah. I'd, I'd definitely be on the, on the phone or potentially knocking on a neighbor's door and asking if somebody was a little bit more brave to, to go and knock on and see what was going on. Yeah, I get you there. No, I, I can see your point of view. Well, the neighbors, they did knock on the door, but it brought no response. But it was then that the neighbor spotted an extremely large number of flies in the living room window of a black girl's mm. house in front of some net curtains. So going back to the front door, they lifted the letterbox to see if they could see anything. Okay, it was when they lifted the letterbox flap that the neighbour got a waft of the most foul-smelling odour they'd ever smelt. Oh, God, you! how often do you hear that? Like, when people, like, knock doors down or, like, enter the property, or... that it's that smell, the smell of death, and that comes, like, people have never smelt death before and they just know yeah. that that's what it smells like. Oh. It's a, like, basic natural instinct, isn't it? Same as animals, but yeah, so fearing for the worst, the neighbour called the police who came and arrived at half past four on that sleepy Sunday afternoon in Sandy Lane in the quiet village of Melling to the home of Sydney, Jacqueline and their son Brian. Upon breaking the door down to gain entry, they discovered the two bodies of Sydney and Jacqueline. Given the scene that was in front of them, they knew immediately that it was a murder scene. And oh, from wow. what they, and from what they saw of their bodies, they were convinced the pair had been shot, but they had to wait for further tests to determine exactly how they died and when. My goodness, you'd think in such a close, like tight knit community, a gun going off would have like echoed down the road around the around the houses, wouldn't it? But you would, yes, so. After speaking to the neighbours, they determined that Brian, their son, was the closest next of kin and that they had to inform him about the deaths, but also that he was a person to speak to, given he had not only told the neighbours a few weeks earlier that his parents were on holiday in Spain, they had also seen him occasionally arrive at his parents' house and leave shortly afterwards. Now, this was something that they didn't think suspicious because he lived there. So Yeah, but if you then found out that they died, like, and I assume the forensic, like, team could say that they'd been, like, the state of the decomposition, that they'd been um, lying there for X amount of weeks, neighbours would then go, oh, that's weird, because their son Brian was there 10 days ago picking up post. Yeah, 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 you'd, you'd think so. So, given they knew the two bodies had been there a while, when they spoke to Brian, his behaviour seemed a little bit off. But there's nothing they could put their finger on. But they arrested him on suspicion of murder. And they actually informed the press when asked that the pair had been shot and they were questioning their son, Brian. Oh, wow. Again, that's quite interesting. You don't usually hear, until somebody's been charged, you don't usually hear like details on the people that are being questioned. Other than no, like yeah. ages and, and you know, a male aged 34 is being questioned, being held and being questioned. Yeah, not normally, but I, I mean, I read the news articles that so definitely named yeah. him. Wow. So when arrested, Brian, who was 19, he would tell them that as far as he knew, his parents were in Spain on holiday. 
that the neighbours had been mistaken when they saw him entering the house, as he didn't have his keys on him, and he'd been locked out for several weeks, so he'd been staying with his girlfriend, Amal Sabah, at her parents' house. He'd been going back on occasion to see if they were home yet, so he could get in and get some of his stuff, but he'd not actually gone into the house. When 24 hours had almost passed, the police knew they had to charge him or let him go. So they petitioned for an extension on holding him, and they were granted an, ex- an additional 36 hours to question him. So who was Brian? Did he kill his parents? Or is it just an unfortunate set of events that make him look suspicious, but he wasn't actually guilty? I mean, if he didn't kill his parents, it's really tragic that he has just found out his parents have died and now he's in the line of fire. Like, I can't imagine not only having to grieve the loss of your parents, but being, like, questioned on double murder. True, but I mean, I, I, I don't know at this stage whether he's guilty or not, Andrew, but, yeah, just... That's true, but if it was me, I'd be super upset, but on reflection, I'd probably think I'm glad they did interview me, so at least they were looking at all possibilities. Yeah. On reflection, obviously not in the moment, but on reflection... Yeah, just taking the case seriously and trying to find the culprit. But uh, yeah, if you were innocent, I think at the time you'd be frustrated that they were wasting their time on you, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would at the time, yeah. But let's have a look at Brian, shall we, Rachel, and decide Mm. for ourselves. That's probably the best option to take. So as I mentioned earlier, Brian was an only child to Sydney, and we're going to call her Jackie now, I guess she'd be afraid to be called Jackie. So he's an only child to Sydney and Jackie. He came late in their life, as I mentioned. So while he was unexpected, they showered him with love and attention. He would be identified as being highly intelligent from an early age, so much so that his parents would give him the nickname Brains. He was described as an exemplary student by his £7,000 a year public school, and he partook in many extracurricular activities, including tennis, and he would be the captain for his school team with a Lawn Tennis Association of Great Britain describing him as a top club player. And his parents doted on him, and they fed into that by boosting the expectations of their son, what they had of him. While he would want for nothing, they actually preferred to keep him in the company of adults, older adults, some of his parents' age, rather than people his own age. One neighbour would recall when they were asked if he wanted to become a doctor when the neighbours were told he was going to study medicine at university, they replied with no, not a doctor, he's going to become a surgeon. So his friends and people that knew him would describe him as being funny, friendly, very outgoing, but also that he was prone to lies, grandiose lies, and that what started out as little lies became bigger and bigger isn't that often the case when parents are kind of living your life for you 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 hear this a lot don't you where you know young children teenagers they're forced to enroll in clubs and societies and private school and you know almost everything mapped out for them the parents kept him away from um entertaining children his own age but instead discussing um matters like i don't know what um with with adults they're going to rebel 
yeah and uh he probably started off with white lies thinking oh i can get get away just with with silly little things here and there but then uh he'll want to test boundaries won't he because he's been so sheltered his whole life um he'll want to start testing boundaries and quite often what you see isn't it definitely and one example of such a lie was when he switched public schools he lied about the sat scores that he got in his previous school to his friends inflating them to make himself look better so in his school he met a mouse sabber and after a few years of knowing her socially they began dating she was a year younger than him they had a similar interest with both of them wanting to go to nottingham to study medicine however just as an aside to show you what his parents were like with him such was his parents effort to get him to excel they wanted him to study medicine at edinburgh so his father contacted the admissions officer and tried to get his preferred choice which to that university and as far as i can tell though that was actually actions because he was still due to go to nottingham when he started to, to get closer mal he went on to tell her how he most likely wasn't even going to study medicine because rather he had intentions to become a professional tennis player and that wow. he had yeah, and that he just signed a sponsorship deal with Nike and a few other smaller deals with other companies. I think it was as part of his his lies. Well, maybe, maybe not. Because remember, he was categorized by the Lord Tennis Association. So with the Nike deal starting at £70,000 a year. Oh, wow. He offered to hire his girlfriend as his personal secretary because he'd need one once he started to become well-known. And he offered her a salary of £82,500 a year, 10% of his earnings, a £20,000 bonus, and a generous expense account. Where do I sign up to be a personal assistant of a tennis player, please? That's what I thought, yeah. And he would write her initial cheque for £39,000. Then he bought her designer clothes, he bought her a car, and he bought her a diamond ring. Oh, I bet he's just smothered her, doesn't he, with... Fancy gifts and, you know, compliments. And her friends, though, they were not convinced about his claims. So she went online herself and searched for him to see what she could find. When she couldn't find anything conclusive, she asked him, why not? And he proceeded to show her the tennis rankings, which would show him holding number one spot in the UK, number one spot for for youth, not adults in the UK, and he told her he'd be going to the French Open and that he'd take her with him. So this, it alleviated her worries because she actually saw proof of his standings and she'd be going with him. So when he was preparing for the French Open, he would visit his local bank and tell an account manager there that he was due to turn professional as a tennis player. So he needed to update his junior bank account and have, have access to credit. And he'd initially be earning £45,000 a year, but would need money to be able to go to the French Open. So just before the French Open, he gave his girlfriend, Amal, some bad news. He told her that partners were not allowed to travel, so as not to distract the sportsmen and women, but that he'd make it up to her. When he was at the French Open, he would call his girlfriend to tell her how amazing it was and that he'd just met Roger Federer. When he returned, 
He said he'd make up to her by taking her on an all-expenses holiday, something she obviously excitedly agreed to. When his mum, because it was his mum that controlled the family finances, even though his dad was a retired accountant, his mum controlled the finances. And when she found out about the holiday, she informed his dad, and they told him that he couldn't take her on a holiday because his spending was too lavish and the money didn't exist to take her. Oh, wow. So on July the 25th, it was time to go on holiday. But before that, he'd go to the David Lloyd Tennis Club in Kirkby with his father, and Sydney would tell, Sydney's father would tell, all who would listen how proud he was of his son for the hard work he'd put into studying for his A-levels. After this, Brian picked up a mail and took him to Manchester Airport to begin a two-week holiday that would cost £30,000. The pounds, and he's yes. eighteen. Yeah, and this was in two thousand and five, so be a oh bit more now. God. So where did they go? So yeah, so to begin with, they both flew business class at a cost of almost five thousand pounds to New York, where they would stay three nights in a presidential suite of the Plaza Hotel at a total cost of two thousand two hundred pounds. They then stayed in the best hotels and ate in the best places as they travelled to Florida then Barbados, then San Francisco, then back to New York before returning home to the UK. Oh, shit. And this was all on credit from the bank? No. Um, no, he told the bank. This is just, um, this is not on credit from the bank, no. So, oh, okay. so he told Amel that he'd bought himself a luxury £60,000 Mercedes sports car and it was parked in an apartment in Southport that he'd just bought for £450,000. And... This will interest you, Rachel, that Stephen Gerrard was a neighbour of his in the apartment block. Oh, wow. Claim to fame. So when when they returned to the UK, he went to his house, his parents' house, and he saw a neighbour who asked him where his parents were because the neighbour thought they'd gone hardy with him. He told a neighbour neighbor that they were in Spain on holiday and that he was locked out of the house. He asked Amel if he could stay at her house for a few weeks until his parents returned because he couldn't get into the house. So, not long after returning, he went to his public school, Liverpool College, to collect his A-level results. And he would tell staff and friends that he was surprised and upset that his parents wasn't there and they chose him to go on holiday and they hadn't even contacted him. That would upset you, though, wouldn't it? Because you would have been, like, that's your kind of, like, final exam, isn't it? Before you head off to uni, A-levels are a big moment. You want your family around you. Exactly, and he would actually obtain top grades in the four A-levels he was studying. So the top grade you can get, and the four four, um, A-levels he was studying were maths, chemistry, biology, and Spanish. So it showed you how intelligent he was. So this leads up to the bodies being found, Brian being arrested and the police obtaining extra time to interview him as during the first 24 hours he would stick to his story that they were in Spain as far as he was aware. So we've come back to the beginning now, Rachel. So we know a little bit about Brian and who he was and his movements up to leading to the bodies being found. So here we have Brian. After 24 hours, if he was guilty, he wasn't giving anything up. And if he was guilty, that is. 
by now he was in the news, he was a suspect and he'd been arrested. But all the media could find out about him was that he was super smart, his parents loved him more than anything and that he was a well-liked young man by everyone, his friends and adults. So as they started to speak to him again in the extended period of time, he would ask the police a question and he would ask him a strange question. And he would say to them, is it cold in prison? And it was at this point that the interview changed. Brian would then admit that on the morning of his holiday, he would kill both of his parents. Oh, he, wow. would go, he would go on to say how he'd been pushing up a picture with a claw hammer and at the same time arguing with his father. And that his father went to attack him. So without thinking, he defended himself by hitting him in the head with a hammer. That his mum then came into the room running towards him, so he hit her in the hammer too, and he also stabbed her and his dad. When he was asked how many times he stabbed them, he responded he didn't know, that he went into the corner of the room and just started crying, that he was expecting his dad to get up and go to the hospital, but he was surprised how quickly he died. He said he didn't know what to do, so he took a shower, changed his clothes, I went on holiday with Amal, his girlfriend. Well, that's just cold, isn't it? Yeah, so now he's admitted it. Let's unpack everything, Rach, shall we? So everything that I've told you, I want to go back over again and see what's true and what's not true. Well, firstly, if you remember the top of the episode... Firstly, if you remember the top of the episode, I said the police reported his parents had been shot. Well, the reason they said this, because the bodies had been decomposing for six weeks in the British summertime. So the the wounds they had looked initially like gunshot wounds, but they weren't. They were hammer blows. So now let's go through everything in the same order I presented in to see what's true and what's not. So firstly, he was classified as a top club player by a Lawn Tennis Association. That's not a lie. But being a top club player... It's very far from being a professional. He was never that good. He didn't have a sponsorship with Nike. That was a lie. He did have one with a company called Fisher, who made tennis equipment, but that was at their lowest level of sponsorship, and all it got him was 50% off their products, no actual cash. He did offer to hire his girlfriend, but the cheque for £39,000 that he gave her bounced. Something he managed to lie himself out of because he was a very accomplished liar. He did buy her a car, a Ford car. That's the model car, K-A. Oh, it's a bit confusing, yeah. And he did buy her designer clothes and he managed that by withdrawing £9,000 from a savings account his parents had that was meant for him to fund his university education. He also did buy her a diamond ring. But it turned out to be costume jewelry, so it was worthless. He did try to open up a bank account to get credit, as I mentioned, as well as try to sign up for 13 credit cards in his parents' names. But his mum found out. She stopped the credit card applications and she told the bank so he never got the upgraded account or credit. Oh, wow. He never went to the French Open, surprisingly. So that was a lie. The morning he killed his parents, well, 
he did kill his parents, but not how he confessed to it to the police. Later forensic examinations would show that his dad was attacked from behind with a hammer as he sat in a chair, so he can't have been attacking him. That he died slumped forward in the same chair. Between his parents, he hit them both several times in the head with a hammer, with force, and he stabbed them. Yeah, well, indeed, he stabbed him a combined time of 50 times. Now, I think it was 20 to his father and 30 to his mum, but I may have got those two seven amounts the wrong way around, but combined, it was 50 times anyway. So it was it was like a frenzied attack, intentional. Like, he definitely yes. wasn't sat there crying, thinking, my dad's going to wake up. Like, all of that was just lies. Yes. Now, it was oh. believed, I know, it was believed he killed his parents just so he could keep his lie alive to his girlfriend about being a tennis player. Oh, wow. The £30,000 he spent on the all expenses holiday? Well, where did that come from? Well, his parents were already dead by now. So that was all purchased with his dad's credit cards that he took with him. He actually bought the two business class tickets on the morning they flew as well. When he collected his A-level results, he did so in the knowledge his parents had been dead several weeks and were lying in the house. He did visit the home several times over the weeks. For what we don't know, but he did go into the house and his parents would have been there and decomposing. That's just so cold, isn't it? Yeah. It what was. an awful human being. He was due to plead guilty to murder Rachel, but he didn't plead guilty in the end because both the defence and prosecution medical experts, they all diagnosed him, and there were five different experts that looked at him, with uh, having a narcissistic personality disorder. So common characteristics of which and what he has is that it gave him a grandiose self-belief and an obsession with power, success, and money. And it also makes people become very accomplished liars. So because of his diagnosis, it was agreed to reduce the charge of murder to one of manslaughter, on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He would plead guilty, obviously, because he was going to plead guilty to murder anyway, and he would be sentenced to 12 years, with the judge stating that he would technically be able to be released after six years, but that was very highly unlikely, given his condition. It just feels like nothing, absolutely no no justice for his parents. What do the other two sons of um, his dad feel about this? It was never... No, they were never in the media, so I don't know. But just awful. I'm not, while he was serving that sentence, he would be given a proceeds of crime order and be ordered to pay back a total of £37,000. That was basically the total sum of his parents' money that he'd spent. And if not, he would have an extra 12 months added on to his sentence. That's okay. not a bad wage, is it? 37, 37000 for 12 months, and actually it'd only be six months, wouldn't it? Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if it, that's what happened. Well, I'm not sure if he paid that back or not, Rach. But what I do know that he's Where's now going to get that money from, though. He probably wouldn't worry, but he is now a free man, though, Rachel. There were conflicting reports about when he was released, but he's definitely released, and it was probably 2016. But there was a few conflicting reports, and as it was not a life sentence, he has no license conditions. 
So what the judge said about it unlikely being unlikely that he'd ever be free again, well, that wasn't quite accurate. So where he is and what he's doing, I have no idea. I could have yeah, there was that. absolutely no records of where he might be living. No. Well, not that didn't look like people just guessed or made it up. Oh, okay. That's a bit scary, isn't it? Like he could be if he's if he's that good a liar, married, children, and that that person is absolutely none the wiser about what happened to him. Well, I think the combination of his intelligence and his accomplished liar, it, who's to say that he didn't manage to lie himself out of staying in prison or yeah. a medical yeah, exactly. facility and and yeah, so it's a strange one this case, but what do you think about it, Rach? Well, I'm thinking there should almost be um, some sort of law that says that you've got to, um, like, you know, in in whatever you do in future after you've committed such an awful crime of, like, murder, that you've got to almost, like, disclose that to whoever you end up living with. Um, well, well, if it had been on licence, it'd have strict conditions. Yeah. I no, technically... but I just think there should be something blanket, accidental death or not. Like, you've, you've taken someone's no, I... life. I get you. Is this a diminished responsibility thing? Right. No, I get you. And technically, there is a... But diminished responsibility, sorry to interrupt you, but diminished responsibility, there's no saying that that won't happen again in the future, right? Like, he he had, like, this psychological um, disorder um, that, like, he's been in prison and punished for, but it's not been treated, has it? So what's to say that that wouldn't... He wouldn't be putting people's lives at risk in future? Oh, no, I agree. And I mean, in the UK now, you can actually check if you're a partner of someone or a parent. Or you can actually go to the police station and check if an individual has got previous history, either sexual crimes or violent crimes. But you have to do it individually and you have to be able to prove that you have a, a strong enough link to that person to need to know. Uh, wow. But so it's not even probably likely, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's an odd one, and I just found it a bit like, like always oh, out already. Like, like it reminds it's me out. of the other case where the one we covered with the lady, she got manslaughter, so she rushed yeah. out earlier, she went out and killed again. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's just sad, isn't it? It is incredibly sad and uh, really like pointless crime. His parents were just looking after him, trying to do what was best for him. And he obviously felt threatened by them, preferred the life with his girlfriend than a life with his parents. And just a really upsetting, appalling crime. Yeah, definitely. So, So thank you, Charlene, for requesting this case. It is one I knew about, but it's one I've completely forgotten about. So it was good to refresh my memory and I enjoyed doing the research on this one. Mm-hmm. Shall I wrap up, Rachel? Yeah. Oh, great. So this has been Season 3, Episode 3, called Is It Cold in Prison? And for one last time, if it's safe to do so, I'd like you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. We've all told them white lies, and we probably will in the future. So when you catch yourself telling one, should you be worried? When does a white lie 
be one too many. So thank you all. And until next time, stay happy. Yeah, thanks for bringing the keys to us. Thanks for recommending it, uh, Charlene. Thanks, Andrew, for the pod. And uh, yeah, speak to everyone soon. Take care. Bye.